Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us for Global Trademark Search and Clearance in a Post-Pandemic World. I'm Chris Bollinger. I'm co-chair of the International IP Committee uh, at the Boston Bar Association. And I'm here with uh, Deb Peckham, who will moderate a discussion with me and Emilia Canella. Um, a little bit about myself. I'm a senior IP counsel at Wolverine Worldwide. Uh, representing footwear brands uh, such as Merrill, Sperry, Saucony, and Keds, among others. Uh, before that, I was in the healthcare and pharmaceutical field for many years, and so I can bring that perspective as well. Um, and with that, I'll kick it over to Amelia and Deb. Morning, everyone. This is Amelia Canella. Um, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I am counsel at Ropes and Gray. I've been at Ropes and Gray for, um, I think, a little over 15 years. Um, before I was at Ropes, I was at another um, general practice firm, and I started life in an IP boutique in Chicago, um, where Chris and I actually work together. Um, I have a you know, pretty classical trademark practice, um, particularly focused on uh, global rights acquisition and clearance and enforcement. Great, and I am Deb Peckham. I am a co-chair of the IP group at Burns & Levinson. Um, I've been here for about 10 years, but I've been a practicing IP lawyer for uh, over two decades, I'm almost embarrassed to say. Um, and my practice is kind of bread and butter, trademark, but also a fair amount of other IP. I tell people I do everything but patent prosecution. Um, and I would uh, I guess the other thing to note is that my practice is probably, it runs the gamut from high tech to consumer products to a little bit of financial services, so sort of all over the, all over the planet. Um, <laughs> in putting this together and, and looking at this slide, I just wanted to make a personal note that that Keds brand is really emotionally exciting for me. <laughs> I still remember like when I was a really little kid, finally getting a pair of Keds. And all I cared about was that stupid brand on the back of my heel. I, didn't, I don't think I cared what the, what the shoe felt like, but it's really fun to see that. Yeah, no. So, yeah, go ahead. I had a similar experience with, with Sperry. I always wanted a pair of Sperry's when I was in, in yeah. middle school and could not get a hold of them. Yeah, flyers. Okay, now we're dating ourselves. <laughs> So um, just quickly on the agenda, um, we, want this, we wanted the session to be um, interactive and conversational. And so the three of us, I think, are going to, I'm going to throw out some questions and ask Amelia and Chris to respond and respond in particular to, you know, given their varied experiences. Um, and we want you guys to try to interact with us too. So please feel free to use that function and ask questions and we'll try to answer them as we go. Um, so we're going to just, this is a kind of a loose agenda for the conversation, why search, the kinds of searches you can do, what sources you can use for searching, what kinds of things that should go into a, a, you know, a strategy around searching, what are the different things we should all be considering. And then the whole point of the session, and at least according to its name, was to sort of talk about how the pandemic may have, um, may have impacted our strategy around searching. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and then we're going to share some more stories and we have put together a loose checklist too. So hopefully we'll have a chance to get to that. 
do that. There we go. So the first thing we wanted to talk about, just to sort of, before we talk about the pandemic and how that might have changed things, we wanted to talk a little bit about the basics. What are the blocking, what are the blocking and tackling issues that we should be considering? So I'll start with sort of what's the purpose of searching? And maybe I'll throw that to you, Chris, first. Like, why do we bother searching at all? Or why should anyone search beyond just doing kind of a simple Google search? Well, num number of reasons. And, and generally when you search, you know, I'm, I'm looking um, to confirm that a trademark is available for use uh, and or registration. Um, there are other reasons to search as well. Um, I think Amelia might speak to due diligence, which is, I think, a big part of her practice. Um, but, you know, if you're in a trademark dispute, uh, a search can kind of give you an idea of how strong the, the marks in, in dispute are. Um, uh, you can figure out questions of who has priority. Um, you can use a search to police infringement. Um, so any number of, of rationales for searching. Um, Amelia, did you want to add something there? Absolutely. So I, I completely agree, you know, with, with all of those rationales, um, you know, specifically from the standpoint of due diligence, you know, a couple of primary concerns would be, um, you know, using a search to confirm that, you know, the, the company that your client is interested in acquiring actually is telling you about everything that they own um, and that that information is accurate. Um, as Chris mentioned, you know, in the context of, of um, enforcement, also in the context of diligence, you can use searches to try to uh, quantify how, how strong um, a mark appears to be um, and how valuable it might be. And, and that could be potentially be a driver um, for valuation of the company. Um, I think, you know, sort of from, a, from an overall standpoint, you know, the question why search, when, when someone asks that to me, I think of all of the clients that come and say, well, I did a search on Google and I didn't find anything. So I think we're good to go. And, you know, what a, what a real trademark search is, is way more than just looking at Google. Um, you know, looking at, at marks that are, that are registered or pending, um, it's not just looking for the identical mark, but also looking for things that might be considered confusingly similar um, and, and could potentially present a risk. So, um, you know, Chris, I don't know if you have other thoughts on, on the value of, of why not just Google. I would say, you know, th there's also a mis misconception uh, among lay, lay folks and, and, you know, brand marketing folks that you can just type it into USPTO as well. Right. Uh, type, type the identical mark into USPTO and if, you know, if it look, appears to be clear, you're, you're good to go. So similar to Google, um, there's, there's that next level of misunderstanding that a USPTO identical mark search is going to cover you. Right. And then, you know, looking outside the United States, in most countries in the world, your trademark right is, is generally going to arise through registration. So even if you don't see something in Google that indicates that a mark is actually being used, um, you know, there's all sorts of things that can be flying under the radar. And the fact of the matter is, is that someone might have a registration that they could assert against you. Right. This might be a good place for me to ask the question about, you know, that this is supposed to be sort of global trademark search and clearance. So when we ask the question, why search? 
and you know, given uh, you know the participants today, you know, maybe have never really thought about trademark searching at all. Can you can one of you just kind of talk about the difference in doing a global search versus doing a U.S. search? Like, what there's there's some real reasons why if you're looking globally, the search becomes kind of a different animal. Can you, you want to answer that? Well, I think you know it, it all comes down to ter trademarks are territorial, and you know anywhere that you want to sell your product you really need a search to confirm that you're going to be able to sell there without an issue. Um, I mean, depending on your level of sales, I mean, we make those kind of calculations and, and risk adjustments um, every day in terms of, you know, where we're going to search and, and whether we're going to search. But for the most part, um, you know, if, if you want to own rights in a market, you, you have to do some diligence, you have to do some searching um, or you should do some searching. Um, otherwise, you know, there's the nightmare scenario where you've put your products in the marketplace in, um, you know, Turkey. And next thing you know, um, you have an infringement suit and your, your product is off the market and you're destroying your own product and, and you've lost any momentum and maybe paying damages. So, right. Um, right. I mean, I know we're probably going to touch on this a lot. It's so much of this, of what we do when we start a clearance project is focused on or centered around or takes into consideration our individual client and their predilections and how sophisticated or experienced they are. But I know that, you know, I, I still have clients who think, oh, well, I, I registered the mark in the US, so I'm sure I'm fine, right? right? I, that's all I needed, right? And so I guess, you know, thinking through kind of, you know, with the client right from the very beginning that if that, you know, your international rights and the scope of your, your rights are territorial, as you said, Chris, but also that, you know, the rest of the world tends to, you know, not really pay too much attention to common law rights. And whoever gets to the register first wins and sort of right. the importance of sort of yeah. thinking that through right from the beginning. There's also a misconception that, you know, once you have filed your application, you, you've got rights. And that's not necessarily the case either. You know, there's, there's opposition procedures, there's examination procedures in many countries, um, a lot of hurdles uh, to get to registration. For sure. And, and I think, you know, we've been spending a lot of time discussing um, risk mitigation, right? But another good reason for searching and, and asking these questions about territorial scope and, you know, what's the direction of the business, what countries are important. Um, it's also important for, at the outset, for um, building value, right, and brand equity. And ultimately, the name of the game is you're choosing a new mark. You, it's a proprietary right that, that is valuable, and you want to make it as strong as possible in the right jurisdictions. Right. Good points. Good points. Oops, sorry, wrong screen. There we go. So let's sort of maybe change the agenda a little bit and talk about I mean, some of this we've touched on, but let's talk a little bit more about search considerations and strategy. Although, no, let's, <laughs> I thought I missed one there. Let's talk about the types of searches, um, knockout versus full commercial and free. And maybe Chris, do you want to take the lead on just talking about what the different kinds of searches are that are out there and when we might employ them? And we'll sure. I mean, the first, first kind of a, uh, cut uh, in this categorization is, you know, the knockout search versus the full search. And 
the knockout is really, you know, intended to knock out trademark candidates early on in the process, as, as early as possible and as cheaply as possible before you get too far down the road and, and are spending money kind of with, with further diligence and filing. Um, it's meant to be, you know, quick and dirty. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if a mark survives that kind of knockout stage, you may want to do some further diligence. You may want to do a full search. And a full search, um, you know, in the U.S., for example, is going to be a more robust um, search of the, re of the register and, and, and federal and state registers and business name databases and web pages and news databases and uh, industry-specific databases uh, and domain names and web pages and the like um, with kind of a broader search um, strategy. It's not just identical mark. It's not just a letter or two here or there. You can, the, these are professional kind of searches that, and searchers that um, do, a, do a nice job in terms of thinking through different iterations of a mark and, and similarities between marks um, and providing a fuller report. Um, right. and, and thinking about the, um, you know, the point again, well, gee, that sounds like Google. Can I just do Google, right? These, these searches, as, as Chris just pointed out, you know, the, they're, they're run by professional analysts um, who are trained to um, search with an appropriately broad scope. And also these companies have proprietary databases of information that's going to be, you know, um, way more meaningful and deeper than just a, a Google search. And, you know, so when clients ask me about, well, well what's the benefit of the full search? Um, as outside counsel, I say, them, well, I like to describe it as providing a snapshot of the register and the marketplace. And that's the tool that I'll use to help you assess um, strength, risk, value. Um, and, and it really can't be duplicated, uh, you know, uh, internally, and, and certainly not through a knockout search. Yeah. I and then, um, you know, in terms of knockout search, there are, you can go commercial and you can go free. Um, there are commercial databases, the same ones you would use for a full search generally, CoreSearch, CompuMark, um, both have, you know, prelimin preliminary screen screening tools. And, you know, they are quite expensive in my experience. Um, but if you have enough volume of searching, then, you know, you really have to go that route. It, it makes sense because they cover 180 plus countries. Um, they have kind of artificial intelligence searching, some fuzzy search logic um, where the computer does a lot of that kind of searching for you in, in particular markets. Um, and, you know, just tremendous amount of capability in terms of, of searching and uh, reporting and data really. So um, that's on the commercial side and, and that's really what we use um, as a high volume searcher. Um, we use CompuMarket actually. Um, but then there are some free tools that are pretty useful. Um, the USPTO actually has a, a fairly strong search engine with, with some Boolean logic and you can cut the data any which way. It takes a little more time 
because you have to craft your searches and, and designate your fields and the like. So it's a little, little more uh, time consuming. My favorite of the free engines is, has become TMView, um, which is from the European Union IP office. Um, and it covers 70 different trademark offices and it has some fuzzy search capability. And it's actually pretty easy to use. Um, it actually has some image search capability as well now in, in beta form. Um, Trademark now has uh, a US and an EU search capability for exact matches. It doesn't get into fuzzy searching, but um, it's also a pretty useful tool on the, at the knockout level to kind of eliminate obvious obstacles. And then, you know, we've, we've kind of denigrated the Google search, but it, it is a really powerful tool. Um, nevertheless, um, particularly in, in, in my business, um, to kind of, in the US, you know, rights are common law right, you know, there's common law trademark rights. And so when I'm searching, we, we want to call a shoe the Betty or something like that. And I can find that there are 10 other parties in the US selling uh, a shoe model called the Betty. And I feel pretty comfortable that I can coexist as well. Uh, so Google sometimes can be my first step and a really easy step to kind of determine that um, you know, I, I can at least use this mark without threat of infringement. And, and I think that that's an excellent illustration of how um, searches and types of searches are not a one-size-fits-all proposition. Um, you know, and it really depends on, you know, sort of what the mark is. And, um, and I think we're going to talk a little bit more in detail about, about those specific search considerations. But you know, in terms of, of the type of searching that you do, if you're, if you're considering a um, mark that you expect to be deployed um, globally or, you know, in many different jurisdictions, um, oftentimes I have clients who adopt a blended approach um, because searching can get expensive. So, you know, U.S. company always doing the deep dive in the United States, doing a full search in the United States. Um, but maybe utilizing database searching um, and Google and other free tools um, to assess the landscape outside the United States. Yeah, I wanted to, I just wanted to take a little bit of a deep dive for a second on sort of the template for searching, especially, again, for people who maybe have, you know, this may be the first time they're learning about knockout versus full. And I know it's, this is a gross, overgeneralized question, but Maybe because, Amelia, you're in outside counsel and Chris, you're inside, it would just be sort of interesting to compare notes a little bit about, like, what is your standard template? Client comes to you today and says, Amelia, we have a new brand. We think we're going to go global. What, what's the first thing you're sort of taking off the shelf in your mind as to how you're going to do this? Like, what do you do first? What does the template look like? Do you start with Google? Do you do the knockout? Just sort of take us through, just real yeah, sure. at what how it works. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, we, we always start with a knockout search. So, I mean, we start the inquiry, unless this is a client that is not U.S.-based, but, you know, most of my clients are. We start the inquiry in the United States. Um, we will run a knockout search. So for us, we have um, a team of paralegals who are very adept at searching. 
Um, we use uh, CompuMark. We use their, their commercial database. And we'll do that knockout search. And I describe that as looking for obvious obstacles to either use or registration or both. Um, and as Chris mentioned earlier, if the mark survives, we always recommend a full search. I would say probably, you know, 99% of the time we're doing a full search. There are occasions where, um, you know, either the client, um, you know, is, it has, a, has a high level of tolerance for risk or budget is a big issue or maybe it's, you know, not that important of a mark. Um, in the broad scheme of things, they'll say, let's just file. 99% of the time we're doing that full search. And then... And is the full search a full U.S. search or is it? A full it U.S. search, yeah. So, so thanks. Thanks for clarifying that. So absolutely. So still looking at the inquiry in the United States, we do that full U.S. search. Um, and typically on a parallel track, if they've already identified um, ex-U.S. jurisdictions of interest, we will do database screening. Um, again, using CompuMark's commercial database, their Sages database. Um, in those jurisdictions, and, and we'll do that on a parallel track with the U.S. full search. Occasionally, there will be foreign countries where, um, uh, you know, the, the client, for whatever reason, wants to take a deeper dive, um, and we will do full searches or get a search from um, a local attorney. And we always, you know, from, from my standpoint, we always work with local counsel in those countries. Um, you can get um, uh, foreign quote unquote full searches, for instance, from CompuMark, um, we don't take that approach. I always work with um, a local attorney in whatever jurisdiction it is so that, you know, they're reviewing the search report and, and you know, with their knowledge of local rules and law, um, et cetera, they're providing, you know, advice and, 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 and color on the search results. Good. Um, do you do it any differently or is it in, from the inside perspective what do you how do you guys run it, it i think very, very sim similar um i think that the difference is here i mean we can usually there are a couple of tracks a couple of tiers of risk in, in our business um you've got lower risk propositions such as seasonal style names we do over 2,000 searches a year, and a lot of those, probably 80%, 80, 90% are, are seasonal style names. So these are things that are, are here and gone. Um, they are uh, not on the product. They're, you know, short-term things. Um, there's also, you know, shorter-term slogans, um, headline, marketing headlines that we'll search um, again, not on product, and so these kind of fall into a bucket of lower risk in, in our in my mind. Um, you know, it's if if somebody were to raise a question about it, we could easily take it off the internet. Um, it's usually not on hang tags or on the product itself, so um, there's less of a risk there from a business perspective. And in that case, these lower risk tier marks, we will um, conduct a a knockout, as, as Amelia said. We'll do that in key markets. Um, so we try to cover, you know, the Keds brand, you know, where does it sell 80, where do we sell 80% of our product? And we'll try to cover those markets. And usually it boils down to, you know, four or five markets and, and we'll, we'll run uh, on a commercial database uh, through our subscription. Sages will we'll run um, 
some knockout searching there. Uh, again, I will do, you know, sometimes I'll go straight to Google with these things. If, there are, if it's a US product and there's a number of parties already using it, then I don't have to do any further work. Um, we can launch the Betty. Um, I love that name. <laughs> I mean, these are kind of the basic names that our marketers are coming up with. <laughs> um, ad nauseum. Um, and then, you know, there, there are higher, and we'll kind of leave it at that. If we can kind of clear it in our key, key markets, in-house, uh, through Sages, then, and, and through Google, then we're kind of done. And, and you, you go to market with those uh, short-term seasonal names and slogans and the like. And then you, you have a higher risk category um, where we're actually putting the mark on the product or it's going to be a new house mark or slogan that they're going to use indefinitely. It's really, you know, strong marketing message for the, for the brand. And then, you know, it has a higher profile. Um, if it's on product and you get an infringement, you know, a cease and desist letter or an infringement suit, it, it's, it's definitely a different caliber of risk. Um, you, you're, you're pulling product off the market. Um, you know, it's embarrassing. You don't want to be in that position. And so there's additional diligence we'll, that we'll do with this, these higher risk categories. Um, we will start again with the knockout in the key markets, try to get rid of whatever we can uh, quickly and cheaply. And then we'll actually do a global knockout. Um, and we, you can cover 180 markets. And we sell in over 200 markets throughout the world. Um, but we'll do that global global knockout for these higher risk things will I'll kind of touch base with the client and say, look, you know, it's not available in Mozambique and, you know, Egypt or, you know, Turkey. And, uh, you know, is this something you still want to consider or are you willing to take the risk in those markets? We'll have that discussion. And then, you know, uh, depending on how the, the client levels out at that point, we'll do a full search in the U S um, and then if there's a particular international market that, um, you know, th the product is really important to, then we may do additional international searching again through um, local council, uh, right. as Amelia suggested. Right. Um, you know, as I, as I sit here and I, and I sort of reflect yeah. on what I do and, and listening to describe what you do, I, I guess I, I also wanted to just mention that as outside counsel, I mean, at least in my practice, I, I really heavily rely on our paralegals because I, I consider them, you know, sort of akin to the professional analysts at CompuMark. I mean, they are more skilled in in developing search queries in the in the commercial database than I am. Right. Um, but I should also mention that you know when the client comes to me with a new mark, even though I do make the recommendations for, you know, the knockout search, the full search, et cetera, that we just described. Um, usually I'll also, before I do anything, pop on TM view, to be honest, and maybe also the USPTO database, but just as a quick preview for myself, you know, it's sort of for internal consumption only. I'll put the identical mark in TM view in whatever class is relevant and see what I see. But I, I never, unless there was something that was just so obvious and glaring that it that it caused you know me to put on the brakes. I don't stop there, but um, like Chris, I do like that tool um, for its ease of use. 
um, for its breadth of, you know, sort of snapshot. And, and I, I use it to, you know, inform myself before I, I deploy um, the standard process, I guess I would say. Yeah. Well, also in favor of TMView and the commercial search databases, but TMView being free, which is nice. Right. Um, right. It does have fuzzy search capability. So it's going to go beyond the identical mark, which is fantastic. Um, and gives you a, another level of, of confidence um, or, or casts a, a bit of a wider net in terms of your initial screening. Um, but I think these free tools are just getting better and better. And at a certain point, they may be sufficient, honestly, um, uh, depending on y your needs, but can cover off a lot of your needs, I think, um, without great expense. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Deb. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I was just going to say, from my standpoint, um, what I particularly like about CompuMark in the context of due diligence is that they do have the of the of these searches that we're talking about these these database searches. Um, they do have cover the most jurisdictions. So you know, again, if we're trying to identify, or right, we want to do a worldwide search, quote unquote, to the greatest extent possible, and see where. Company X may have registrations or applications. That's the tool that I want to use. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's there's no um, substitute for the commercial databases at the moment. I will say TMView is getting pretty darn good. And I think I with 70 offices, they're covering over 100 countries at this point. Right. Um, so you, and you real could, major markets. Yeah, absolutely. U.S., Europe, which is, let's face it, U.S., Europe, Asia, those are really the markets that, um, you know, most U.S. clients are looking at. Um, I'll just offer up that part of, the, part of the reason why I was so excited to do this session is because I feel like it's so great to be able to compare notes with other people who do what I do, you know, day in and day out, it, because it sort of confirms what you've been doing, but also, you know, you learn new things from other people and um, our, you know, my process is just pretty much spot on with yours. The only thing, uh, a couple things that I'll just sort of add for, just for people's edification maybe is that we tend to use, and if this is just kind of a fluke of right now, we tend to use core search a lot. And I have a, the firm has a, um, a subscription with them that allows me to do some pretty broad international searching in essence without charging the client unless unless it gets pretty deep, I can basically make my own decisions about whether or not I'm gonna bill for that, but I can take a quick look. Um, so that also is helpful to us, but it's the same, it's exactly the same um, thing. A paralegal will do it doing the knockout and then moving on to a full search. And then I think what the tweak, I guess, with international searching is when you, when you decide with the client to go as deep as you can go and then engaging with agents, I think that's really important. We'll talk a little bit later, I think about um, you know, when you go that far and how you devise um, the analysis and synthesis for the client and the caveats you need with respect to international clearance if you're not getting an opinion from counsel outside the U.S. The other thing I just wanted to sort of touch on that you started up with, Chris, was the image searching, which is kind of an interesting new thing. It used to be until not that long ago that the only place you could do any kind of image searching um, was the USPTO and then you had to structure a search around describing basically doing a description of the brand and trying to see if you could get things to come out that way um, 
which is a pretty limited universe. But now you can do more. And I, I learned from you that you can use TMView to do some image searching. I have recently started to use it, the Google image search um, capability, which gives you some sense of, you know, you just basically can upload an image and it, it will give you, a, it'll spit back at you things that Google thinks are similar. And you can also use, um, this is on the checklist that people got, you can use this service called TinEye which also will take an image and search the web to see if there are identical images out there. And particularly sometimes with clients who tend to grab images and think they can brand them, that can be a very edifying search that you can do for free and pretty quickly and say, hey, <laughs> this looks like clip art that 8,000 other companies are using. Um, so just, I just wanted to sort of offer up those other kind of complimentary comments. Absolutely. Uh, I wanted to follow up with um, on the commercial search firms, um, CompuMark versus Core Search, and there are others like Trademark Now is is newer. Um, but if anybody's considering, you know, which one to go with, and you know, the pricing is generally going to be pretty similar, um, the, the coverage is generally going to be pretty similar. If you're looking at a full search, um, I, I think. The distinction is, you know, this is such a subjective process. And I, I think each of them will probably give you a free search just to test it out. And so, you know, it, it's worthwhile, you know, to compare them, you know, kind of compare full searches from each company, see which one you like better, maybe you like a different format, uh, one format over the other. But what I found is, um, odds are there are going to be some distinctions maybe in quality and and i've seen this throughout my 20 years i just have developed some preferences for what um you know a certain company can give me over the other right um in terms of you know maybe they one of them missed something or and and so i, I do that every so often just to kind of compare notes and you know it's a snapshot um and they know that you're kind of testing them. So in theory, they should be doing their best job on that search. Um, but it, but it, it's always pretty telling um, um, at any given time, you know, who might be uh, doing a better job. Right. Yeah. I mean, I probably we shouldn't say more than that, but except to say, you know, we always caveat the results anyway, as we report them to whomever we're reporting them that it is possible and it has happened that um, the researcher can miss relevant results. Um, but we can talk more about that later. But I agree with you. So if you've never done it before, I, I would go out to all of them and ask for the search to be done for free. And then you get three of them and you can compare them and decide who to go with next. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to mention, I noticed we have our first question before we move away from types of searches. Thanks, okay. Joshua, for your question. Are there special considerations for South American countries? Um, and I presume you mean for searching in South American countries. Um, and I'll just say from my standpoint, um, well, I mean, I guess it, it, it depends on the nature of the mark. Um, in general, I would say I don't have any particular special considerations. Um, I would frame um, the review from the standpoint that in South American countries, rights are going to arise based on registration. So you do, you know, if, if you have a sensitivity, um, 
with respect to your use of your mark in, in South America, um, and you want to reserve your rights, uh, you want to be taking a look at um, the registers in the relevant countries. And, you know, if it's, if it's that important, you probably want to be thinking about filing there. Um, Chris, I don't know if you have any other special considerations for South America. Yeah, no, no special considerations. Uh, just a reminder that, you know, trademarks are territorial. And so if, if you want, I would say if a particular mark is, it, it, a lot of this depends on budget as well. You know, of course, yeah. do you want to do a full search in any of these countries? Um, you may want to if, if it's particularly important, uh, your business is particularly strong in a particular market, um, you may want to do a full search. Um, if you have time uh, to spare, I mean, sometimes it makes sense to file and, and um, see how it plays out. Although I guess in South America, a lot of those countries are not quick on the draw in terms of the application process in my experience. Um, so maybe on second thought, maybe you don't have a tremendous amount of time in, in um, South America to kind of let those things kind of filter through. Um, but anyway, no, no particular special considerations for South America, I would say. Right, I think that's right. Although, the, and this is not specific to South America, but if you are searching in, in countries that are not English speaking countries, this sort of dovetails or sort of segues nicely to our next topic, which are considerations. One thing you might want to be thinking about is does the mark have a meaning in a foreign language that you should be considering if you're searching outside the US and in other, in other languages? There is the famous Nova <laughs> right. Uh, right. story. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's, it's a real story I've heard <laughs> different, differing um, answers on that, but um, you know, no, no, Nova, Chevy Nova in Spanish obviously is, is no, doesn't, doesn't go, doesn't work. Yeah. And um, so that was kind of a, a black eye, at least in the apocryphal um, tale uh, for Chevy in South America. Right. So, Amelia, let's, we've touched on some of this, but maybe can you start by sort of listing off what are the kinds of things people should be, as you're devising a strategy, what, what kinds of things are on your mind and question, initial questions you're asking, and then Chris can kind of fill in the details from his perspective. Yeah, sure. So, um, I guess, you know, one of the, some of the primary questions I would ask would be, um, is this a mark that you consider to be um, uh, long lasting? Or is this something that is going to just be used as Chris has described for a season? Um, that's going to inform the search strategy hand in hand with the budget, right? Because if it's something that is only going to be used for a short period of time and or is used, you know, let's say only on the web or be easy to remove in the event that, that you know, someone um, made an objection, then that may be a situation where it's reasonable to not do a deeper dive and, and the search would be structured accordingly. Um, you know, is the mark um, going to be a house mark? I mean, I do a lot of financial services work. Um, you know, for me, a, a lot of the marks that, that clients are devising actually are pretty important. You know, it's the name of a new fund. Um, it's gonna have a lot of visibility they expect it to be long lasting. They want to be building brand equity. 
Um, under those circumstances, you know, certainly I would be recommending a deeper dive, you know, particularly in the United States and, um, and, and considering, you know, foreign jurisdictions off the bat. Um, you know, I think also probably the competitive environment that one finds oneself in, um, you know, are there, are there, um, you know, sort of a lot of aggressive competitors, I guess I would say. Um, you know, who are really going to be vigilant about policing their marks. Um, and, I, and I think that that's probably something that, you know, Chris experiences on a regular basis. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's definitely a consideration and, and something I think about every day when, when clearing marks. Um, you know, there are big players in the footwear industry, obviously. Um, real, uh, you know, giant uh, giants of the industry and with deep pockets. With deep pockets and, you know, they have the budget to kind of uh, create a scope of protection around their marks that, that uh, they might not otherwise be able to. And so even though it might not be a clear case of infringement, you may shy away uh, from kind of pursuing certain marks if they are even remotely close to uh, the competitors and, and looking at their litigation history, you know that they, you know, enforce their marks strongly. Um, you know, budget is, is a huge consideration um, and informs a lot in terms of what you're, you're going to do and able to do. Um, I was in, in the pharma industry, as, as I mentioned, um, and the pockets are a lot deeper. And, and I think the stakes are higher um, when you're selling a billion dollar drug versus, you know, 20,000 pairs of shoes of a, of a certain model. Um, and so the budget there was, you know, anything goes, you didn't really have to think too much about budget. You, um, we, we ended up searching everywhere more or less. Um, and, uh, you know, timing is a factor as well. Um, you know, as I mentioned, you know, if, if you have time, um, maybe you can, uh, cut back on a little bit of your searching and, and let things play out in the in the trademark office. See how things go. Um, maybe save some some money on on your your search search and clearance if if you're able to just kind of throw in an application. Right, right. I, I think that that's um, something that that I commonly see a, a version of that strategy, which would be you know again do the deep dive in the united states do um some database searching outside the united states um you know get to a point where we feel comfortable about the prospects of the mark in all of the most important jurisdictions um but then as chris says rather than doing the deep dive in the foreign country divert the money the budget to you know, actually the filing fees. And, and a great example of this is the European Union, because if you wanted to do a quote unquote full search in the EU, you really need to do a full search of every national registry of all 27 member countries of the European Union. You're gonna look at the EU IPO, um, and then you're also gonna look at quote unquote international registrations that have been extended to any of those 28 different jurisdictions. Um, and it's really just cost prohibitive to do a full search, quote unquote, of that nature. So, you know, we do the database screening. Maybe if you want to do a deeper dive, engage 
council in the EU who will look at the EU register plus any jurisdictions that are particularly important. So in my practice, usually that's either UK, Germany, France, you know, some of the major markets. Um, if we we're going to do a quote unquote full search, we might include those national registries as well and, and get the opinion of local council there um, and go on that basis. But you know, nine times out of 10, I would say we're doing the screening search outside the US and then spending the money on the filing fees. That's exactly right. I, I mean, I, th I think you guys hit all of the major points. The, um, I mean, one of the things just in my practice, because I do tend, I do have a lot of startup clients, that whole conversation around budget versus just filing is a big one. So a lot of what I'm doing at the beginning is figuring out what's the launch and how prominent is this mark going to be? And what's the exposure if you launch and find out, you know, that there's a problem either in the U.S. or internationally? as Chris said, is it, you know, a thousand pairs of shoes or is it a major global launch of a billion dollar consumer product that um, is going to result in huge potential damages? Um, and the other thing I think that sort of comes up, and I think you both have touched on it, um, is just kind of what the sophistication is of the client you're, you're working with and what their risk aversiveness is, because every client is a little different. Mm -hmm. So I might tailor some of what my search strategy is to my knowledge of the client or what I can learn from the client's kind of willingness to take chances or, or not, and then sort of have that conversation around where the money is best spent given whatever their budgetary constraints are. Yeah. So there is a lot of kind of, I think, initial thinking you have to do if you're going to put together the best search for a particular, for a particular question or brand or client. I, I agree with that. And I think that, um, one thing that we haven't really touched on is, is when you're when you're considering the budget, can you tier your strategy um, to, you know, match budget and anticipated rollout? So, like as a as a gross generalization, you know, I often like to think of three tiers. Tier one is usually going to be the U.S. and wherever else is really important right now. Tier two might be. You know, we think that we're prob this probably will be an important market in the next, you know, three to five years. Right. Um, and then tier three is um, what I like to call the aspirational tier. You know, gosh, we'd really love to be selling shoes in Japan. I don't, I don't think that's going to happen, but I want to keep it on the list because we're we're sure working towards it. Yeah. Yeah. Great. And that helps you manage your budget. Absolutely, yeah, all of those things. Um, let's, oops. Okay, so now the ultimate question, the whole reason why we're here. <laughs> now that we've sort of thought through how to search, what the information is we need, what the considerations are that go into a strategy, let's talk a little bit about how the pandemic has sort of changed our thinking, if at all. Um, or influenced it, and maybe Chris, you want to start like from an inside perspective. What, how, have you seen any changes? Anything different? Is it just a budgetary issue at this point because of the economics of the moment? I will say, you know, in-house budget. The budget is always, you know, prominent in our minds, um, and you know, particularly in the pandemic. I think retail sales were sales for our company were down fifty percent um, year over year in April. So 
kind of dire circumstances um, for the company. Um, I, I do think we've kind of right-sized our search strategies over the years with, with a real you know, focus on budget. Um, so not necessarily changes in that strategy. I, I think we, we would err against full searches sometimes, um, feeling that you know, maybe we've done enough. So we may cut back on that type of expense. What we're really seeing um, is uh, you know, that product lines are being cut in the, in the industry. And so you may have had 200 different product lines uh, among the brands and now you're down to 100. Um, so there's, been, there's a lot less work and that affects the budget, of course. Um, so they uh, haven't really honestly changed strategy that much, uh, maybe some tweaks around the edges, but as a, as a practical matter, there's fewer products coming out. And um, um, so, yeah. Yeah. Amelia, I, I will say, I will say, you know, push comes to shove. Um, you know, I, I could lean a little more. We, we already have kind of a built-in sunk cost prescription, uh, subscription to um, one of the commercial vendors. But uh, if push came to shove and, and we didn't have that, I would definitely go with the free, some of the free services that are out there, like TMView uh, for knockout screening. Right. Yeah. yeah, I agree with that. And, and I guess I would just say that from my perspective as outside counsel, I'm still waiting a little bit to see what happens um, because I think that when this all first blew up um, a lot of budget was allocated and in place and it wasn't pulled back um, and so you know I kept saying to myself gee I feel really busy um, now I think I'm starting to see some of the effects of the pandemic um, you know so a couple of examples I think that um, clients are going to be um, in some cases a little bit more interested in spending their budget on just filing rather than doing even a full search in the United States, um, even though I recommend against it. Um, you know, so trying to use some of those, those free tools and, and, you know, kind of a more robust screening search, if you will, rather than going to the expense of a full search. Um, you know, on the transactional side, um, you know, transactions obviously have slowed way down. Um, that's starting to filter down to, to my practice as well. Um, and I've noticed that, you know, for those transactions that are still ongoing, budget is um, much more closely scrutinized. So again, I think doing a lot more um, with the databases um, and other types of searching rather than, you know, a lot of the deeper dives that we may have done before. Yeah. Yeah. I think the takeaway seems to be, we still don't really know what the final impact of the pandemic is going to be. But I think, I tend to agree that um, I think the upshot in the short term, at least with respect to search and clearance, is probably that those free services are going to get a lot more traffic <laughs> because of budgetary or perceived budgetary constraints. Um, but otherwise, the process is the same and the thinking has to be the same. It's just um, we don't know when this cliff is going to hit us all. Right. And, and maybe there'll be a, a more of a willingness on the part of clients to embrace risk, right? Yeah. I mean, because there's, there's always a minimum amount of risk associated with the adoption of any new mark. Um, and maybe they'll say, okay, well, 
we recognize we're not getting that full snapshot of the register in the marketplace, but we're willing to take that risk. Great. Um, we, I, I think we, it, this is supposed to be an hour, right? So I, I don't want to take up too much time yeah. and I want to leave people time for questions, but there are a couple more things I think we wanted to touch on. And Chris, you had um, just offered up this slide from CMU. Why don't you just really quickly show for people who might want to do some image searching, just talk about what, what this, what this is. Um, well, the commercial databases, uh, image searching is still extremely expensive. Um, and even we've been priced out of it, honestly. I've never used it um, at any of uh, my companies, um, just given the expense. So I was really pleased to see, you know, uh, Deb, you pointed out Google image searching is a tool for the kind of check out the marketplace, but TMView actually has a beta version of image searching, um, which is, is pretty, pretty nice and robust. Um, you, you upload your logo and here I, I picked the Saucony logo and just to see what came up and it, it does give you kind of in order of relevance and it only covers, you know, 20 plus European markets, but I'm sure they'll expand it at some point. It can be a really fantastic tool moving forward, I think, for some of the image searching uh, logos that, um, that clients come up with. It's great. It's great. I'm so glad that uh, you told me about it because I didn't know about it. Um, let me just pull over. We, people should have received, we did put together this kind of uh, international trademark searching clearance checklist based upon our conversations leading up to this. It's, it shouldn't be considered sort of the end all be all, but it, it is, you know, it is, I think, a good template to start from, especially if you're kind of lost and you're not sure where to start. But the one thing that we haven't touched on that I thought maybe we could close with, if you guys wouldn't mind, is just talking about um, how you, once you do all this and you sort of pull together all this information, uh, you know, geographically from foreign council, wherever it is that it's come from, just kind of give a thumbnail sketch of how, what kind of things go into how you report that up the chain, whether it's to an outside client or Chris to someone up the chain internally, um, oral, written, what, what are the kinds of things that people should really be thinking about as they start to pull together the analysis? And maybe Amelia, we wanna start with you and then turn it over to Chris. Okay, okay. so um, typically I, I like to have ultimately a conversation with the client. Um, you know, years and years ago, um, more than two decades ago, I think I wrote an opinion letter for every mark that I searched. And I haven't written an opinion letter in ages because they're really expensive and no one wants to pay for that. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, looking at it from the US search standpoint, I always provide a copy of the full search, uh, you know, the full search report for the client's records They come in a PDF copy, I send that over. Um, I typically will compile some notes um, that's basically like a chart of hits that I think are relevant that, that illustrates either risk or coexistence or, you know, a variety of different things um, that I consider to be sort of working notes of mine. And I'll share those with the client usually. Um, and then, you know, we have a conversation about it. If I've done some foreign searches, um, I try to summarize the results and, and then, you know, sort of the, the and, and have, again, have a conversation with the client about it. But you know, the overall approach that I'm taking is I'm trying to identify risk in terms of whether it's reasonable from a business perspective or not, 
Um, so Deb, to your point of understanding the client's level of tolerance for risk, that's something that I'm factoring into the presentation of the results and the conversation about it. Um, because, you know, it's not my job, uh, unless I see that something's high risk, like I think you're going to get sued. Ultimately, it's not my job to tell them what they consider to be reasonable. I want to put it on a spectrum and then have that conversation with the client so that they can understand, and I call it like, you're going into this eyes wide open. You know what we've identified, you, you see what's out there. If this is a reasonable level of business risk for you, again, if I don't think it's a high risk, um, I'm okay with that. And we work with you and we're trying to get to yes. Right, right, good. Chris? Um, well, my experience in-house is, and Amelia, you referenced the, uh, the opinion letters, um, when we were working together 20 years ago, I was amazed that, you know, that was, that was kind of the format, um, was this 10 page opinion letter, uh, with tremendous level of detail. I mean, um, I haven't seen that, you know, kind of since that, that practice that we were, that we were in. Um, today it's, it's usually a yes or no answer. And if it's a no, it's a one liner. Um, for a lot of, a lot of the, again, high volume, um, a lot of these are kind of day-to-day marketing folks I'm dealing with, um, and not, you know, executives on a lot of this stuff. So, and they just want to know, can I use the mark or not? Mm -hmm. And so it's a yes or no. And, you know, I try to add some caveats in my template that, you know, um, it's a really basic search, you know, we haven't done a deep dive, but here's our preliminary thoughts. If you want to discuss further, we could do more diligence. Kind of leave the door open in case, in case, you know, they were really banking on a certain mark and want to do more, more research that we haven't kind of foreclosed moving forward with that. I mean, there are usually some arguments um, yeah. that you can come up with to kind of get around obstacles. Right. If you, if the client so desires. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they don't have the patience usually in-house in, in my experience to kind of wade through any level of um, detail. It's yes or no, it's, it's a one-liner, it's a paragraph um, at the next level. Um, you know, sometimes an executive gets involved and they have a real bee in their bonnet for a particular mark and you may have to go into a little more detail and provide um, more rationale and, and more explanation for why something may not be available um, or what the risks of, of proceeding are. And, but yeah, there's very little patience within the business. Um, they're under a lot of pressure. They want to know yes or no, basically. And so I, I try to deliver that. And, it, and if it's no, um, as you said, Amelia, you know, um, and they want to pursue it, then we can talk about, you know, here's, here's what you would need to do. You, know, you add an element to it, or you change it up a little bit, or you limit it to certain marketplace, um, those types of considerations. Right. I think that's right. So much of what we're trying to do is, I, I mean, I do think it's important to sort of drive that point home around not giving the client some flexibility because especially from the outside lawyer's perspective, we can say what we can say, but someone in, inside may have a particular predilection for this mm -hmm. particular mark, and no matter what we say as to risk, we'll move forward. And so if what you say is a hard no, which almost never happens, but if it, if it is a hard no, I think you still have to give them some 
sense of what the defenses would be or whether you don't want to ever put in writing either by implication or otherwise uh, a suggestion that adopting a mark might lead to an infringement suit or right. something of that nature. So you do have to be really careful about how you how you communicate it and then maybe even if you're outside counsel, um, how you document what you said if you only delivered it orally. Um, uh, and I guess I, we won't go too much deeper into that, but I just think it, it is an important part of the process, trying to figure out how you're going to communicate the result. Yeah. Um, and I guess to that point, very quickly, I would just reiterate, there is, in my view, always what I call an average amount of risk associated with a new mark. And that average level of risk, which is the lowest level of risk that I'll ever, you know, um, identify, um, it's reasonable. Right. But you just want to make sure that your client understands, despite all of the searching and, you know, effort, um, nothing's perfect. Subject, um, trademarks are a bit of a subjective business. Right. Everything could look good. You file an application at the USPTO and then you get an office action saying X, Y, and Z is confusingly similar. And you think, are you crazy? Yeah. Occasionally that happens. Amelia, well, that never happens. Never <laughs> happens. No, actually, no. Yeah. Those, those are the exact, you know, caveats that we provide, you know, in our kind of our template reporting memos um, to the client um, that, you know, there are no guarantees here, you know, reasonable risk is about as low as you get. And, and I'm thinking in terms of, you know, some of the opinions I've gotten from outside counsel internationally, and you never, you know, we always look for a percentage, you know, what's the percentage, it's yeah. well, what's the percentage it's going to be registrable. You never get over 70 in my experience. And 70, yeah, I would have heard that. 70 is kind of the goal, then you, know, you go forward with 70%. Right, right. Heck, you go forward with 40%. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And you also can never predict, it's not just the office, you can't predict what you know, third parties are going to do. So that's right. You know, there's a lot of, you know, even if it's in, you know, a claim that lacks merit, you cannot guarantee that somebody isn't going to send a demand letter and think their rights are just much greater than they really ought to be. Um, I can't tell if there are questions. So can, are there any questions on the? Uh, I don't see any additional questions. If there are additional questions, please uh, submit them now. And, and we may have a moment to kind of address any last minute questions. We didn't get to our war stories, but if people want to contact us individually for our stories, I'm happy to share mine. Um, but. This has been great. I really enjoyed doing this with you guys. I hope people got something out of it. And I would invite anybody who's participating. I, 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 think, I think I'm free to speak for my co-presenters to please feel free to reach out to us with questions. I love to share notes with people about how, how you go about doing this. I think it's all a fun puzzle to solve. So I'm, I'd be happy to field questions from anybody. Uh, absolutely. absolutely. I feel the same. And um, you know, please feel free to reach out anytime. Yeah, agreed. It's a, it's a small community. I think that we're a pretty tight community, traditionally, the trademark bar. Yeah. Uh, I agree with everything that's been said. Yeah. Well, thank you, uh, Deb and Amelia and Daniel from the BBA. Um, I'm not seeing any further questions. We will um, bring this to a close. And um, you should have all received an email, I think, with a copy of the slides and uh, our the checklist that we put together. Um, but again, if you have any other questions, please feel free to reach out.
and uh, we will see you next time. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Enjoy the day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.